What can culture do? What can culture do? What is culture? Culture unites us. My name is Geraldine DeBastian. Sorry, um, as I said on stage, I have a completely different background <laughs> to most of the people who spoke earlier today. I work in digital rights, so internet freedom issues and and um, human rights issues mainly. But I think there's some kind of touching points of some of the things that you spoke to about, especially in the context of designing um, futures, which I'd like to get to as we're speaking. Um, I'm going to kick it off with one or two questions, but please feel free to just start raising your hands or even come up and join us if you want. This is not being videoed, so in case you're in the back and can't see you, just come up and join us for a kind of fishbowl conversation. Oh, it is. But that's just for the docu, uh, the image film, right? This nice gentleman is making an image film. He's not going to film us all the time. Okay, so um, raise your hands, come up on stage, however you would like to interact with us. we go closer? Yeah, do you want to do that? Okay. it feels strange to me. I'm just taking my laptop because I've written some questions there. Yeah. Is that better? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a bit better as well. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, Wayne, I'd like to kind of kick off with the... You know, we have this general saying, it's the winners that write the history. Mm-hmm. And I found it was very moving how you said... How you started speaking a little bit, how do we, how do we get to document all those other narratives? How do we capture all the other narratives of the people who maybe didn't come up as the winners in, in our museums as a, as a society at large. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, in a way I actually think that perhaps that's one of the moments that we're in right now, probably one of the urgent moments that we're in right now, um, to start combating this, to start reorganizing this writing of histories or the giving, giving the possibility to write other histories. There's this amazing scholar, his name is, um, he, he died recently, um, actually, Michel Rolf Trio, who has this um, 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 book called Silencing the Past. And what he describes, he describes how exactly how history is written, written by the strong, the whatever, but that there are groups of people who are trying to fight desperately to reorganize the possibility of writing histories. And I think they're reorganizing, giving themselves that possibility. And I think that try, as cultural institutions, but in the work that you do, the idea is, is it possible for us to, to work closely with those others to be able to reorganize that power of writing histories? Right, and I think this kind of collaborative aspect, mm-hmm. um, I guess, is very much at the core of that. You know, how do you actually build more collaborative structures than we've perhaps had in the past? I found the closing point that you had on sort of the returning of, let's say, stolen or borrowed cultural goods, a very important one that you made. And mm-hmm. if I heard it out correctly, you also were trying to hint at, like, you may lose an item, but you could win a whole different collaboration. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing is that I think that we shouldn't get get um, suggest collaboration as an easy thing. Eh? Yeah. I, actually, I, 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 the, the genealogy there is a word, a Dutch word called samenwerke, um, working together. That's that's what collaboration is, and I like that word yeah. because what it does is that it says exactly what it is. But one of the difficulties, how do you, as cultural institutions or as big institutions, work, for example, with activists? Activists always create anxieties for many cultural institutions, uh, and I would suggest that many activists are trying to exactly reorganize the possibility of writing histories differently. How do you work um, um, collaboratively 
in, 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 in more equitable ways mm -hmm. with all of those people. And so, so first of all, I want to say collaboration is a, is a, is a difficult thing. Um, the, almost every time you speak from a perspective of an ethnographic museum, that questions of return always comes back. Okay. <laughs> it is the hot topic of the moment yeah. with almost all of our kind of museums. And, and yeah, it is a difficult topic, but it is one of the touchstones of thinking about the colonial entailments in the present and thinking critically about what battles we want to fight to try and not, not undo history or rewrite history, but try to attempt to um, heal the wounds of history. Right. And I think that that is where these questions of giving back or not giving back, those are where the questions are about. Questions of redress, repair, repairing historical wrongs, those things. And I think, I mean, in that sense, the title of the session could have been um, added to by saying it's not just nationalistic, but also imperialistic tendencies that we sometimes tend to protect under the mantle of, um, of culture or protecting a kind of culture that we've built up. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, nationalism has within it a lot of, a lot of imaginations, a lot of ghosts. A, a part of the, the question of the national is that it is intricately bound up with questions of the colonial or questions of the imperial. So I would say that, yeah, the, 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 um, the, the, the panel dealing with questions of nationalism is, and if you read other scholars who speak about it is that the kinds of nationalism that we are a part of now is one that forgets our imperial mm -hmm. or colonial um, past as well and how those trade within the kind of narratives that we've come to know. So it, it, the, the, the panel could have been called that, yes. I think that is very true um, to Germany, what you just said, at least in my perspective. Yeah. And I find it quite fascinating some of the... Um, like I just suggested, some of the lengths that um, people go to to defend um, sort of the lack of openly talking about a our um, our colonial history and and the and the strife caused because of that, but also the length that people go to to defend the fact that we have museums full of items that don't belong to us. For instance, the sort of very sort of um, pub corner niveau argumentation of like, well, they've bombed their country to bits in the meantime. It's a good job. We've kept all their things in our museum here. <laughs> no, she wants to put me in the hot spot, right? <laughs> that's, basically, that's basically where you want to put me. Um, yeah, the thing is that I think that I should suggest to you, I mean, it's good that you highlight Germany. I don't need to talk about Germany um, in that sense. I think that across Europe today, this question is, 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 is being raised. Um, we have to recognize that the recent pronouncement by President Macron, yeah. um, what is happening in the UK. So all across Europe, the question of the colonial and what to do with colonial things, quote unquote, is, is a part of the discussion. And actually, it is interesting that it has come at this moment when questions over how to define the nation and how to protect it are happening at the same time. And you are correct. I mean, one has to, we, we need to, and that's where I like to think how histories inform the present. We need to ask more critical questions. When we use terms like, but it was legal at the time, uh -huh. what does that mean? You know, you have to be critical about what that legality might have meant. But also when you use things, uh, when you suggest that they can't preserve it over there and we can do it better, one also has to think critically about what that might mean. 
we, we probably can't dis, dis, discuss that here today, but I think that there, there are ways in which one needs to think um, what one is saying. Absolutely. I think that's a, it's an elementary thought that one individually and as a society needs to ask oneself in different situations yeah. and the vice versa. Yeah. So not just just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Um, but the other way around, just because it's illegal doesn't always mean it's wrong. Right. Sort of touching on the aspect of activism that you spoke about earlier with the idea of civil disobedience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I like that in the, actually, I really like that in the, in the, in the, in one of the things that was proposed as Roth's idea about disobedient things, you know, Mm -hmm. that things can be disobedient. No, it is true. I mean, the idea of legality is something that is created within a particular frame. The idea of somebody being legal, it is, it is outside of what is accepted as legal in a particular moment to suggest that something was not legal, was legal at the time, also needs to contend with the idea, perhaps, that the same law um, that constituted it as legal also created notions of what property is, which made it possible to think property differently. So I think that we, it is a complex terrain that one would have to negotiate Absolutely. and think through. Which is a part of the work that we do in, the, in, in my museum. And it's something I can very much relate to coming from my background because yeah. that is why, for instance, apparatus of surveillance, of digital surveillance, are seen so critically because you might argue that the data being gathered about us today is within, not always within legal frameworks, but by systems that are rule-abiding and, and, uh, and there to serve their citizens, like the government we have today, but you never know how these might be abused by power structures in the future. Yeah, no, and, and that, that is definitely the case case i have to give you can i give you a joke yeah please Sorry, terrible <laughs> joke um i lived in the uk uh, i was there for a couple of years and then i moved to the netherlands and immediately as i moved to the netherlands i needed to get a visa to go back to the uk because I, I i was i'm, I'm jamaica and so I, I get a visa and and this i don't really want to talk badly about people so the visa office had moved from amsterdam to germany so I had to travel to Dusseldorf <laughs> to get the visa, the, the, uh, where, where the office was. But the, <laughs> the, 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 the time for the visa was early in the morning, so I had to stay overnight. And so one starts incurring a lot of costs to get a visa, right? Then I reached there, and they did the biometric tests, and I'm, I'm measured and whatever, whatever. And I go back and I wait for the visa for a month, and then I get the visa. But unfortunately... The passport that I get, my passport is Burgundy, and the passport that I get is red. This is me, and the person who is in the passport is an amazingly beautiful woman that doesn't look like me. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so they sent me the wrong passport. And the gentleman, so I said, okay, okay, what am I going to do? Immediately I saw online a Facebook message that invited me to come and exchange the passport in the train station. It was like espionage. Really nice, right? <laughs> but I got a call from the, the, emb- the, the, the people who were doing the visa to say, oh, we sent you the wrong passport, whatever. So I said to him, Can you, we have established that one needs to enter into the securitization regime that takes all of my fingerprints and whatever. So that is security. That is what we do to secure our futures. And then you send my passport to somebody else. Not only do you send my... He said to me, can, you just, can you just put it in an envelope and send it back to me? <laughs> <laughs> no. So I said to him, 
but the, but previously you asked me to use DH, DHL because that was secure. You're now saying the security is not necessary anymore. So, so in, in a way, it tells you about how we constitute ideas around what is secure, what we, what we can secure, and how those are mapped onto certain people who live a particular precarity. And I'm not suggesting that I live precarity, not at all. But it, 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 it tells you about, some, in some ways, the fallacy of the systems which we've come to know as securing our futures. And it is not, we can all make mistakes, but I'm just saying that it is indicative. Absolutely, it's a fantastic example. Um, I think it's very, you know, poignant also to some of the comments that uh, some of the previous speakers who spoke about this ambivalence of technology made earlier and this idea that systems especially designed by humans, whether they're the humans themselves or the um, artificial intelligences we design are never without flaw because none of us are without flaw either. I agree. <laughs> I want to open this up for your questions and comments because I think we can keep talking up here. Um, but I'm just the, every time I look over, I'm just seeing if one of your hands goes up in the air. So please feel free to do that, both if you have a question or comment or a story to share yourself. Or a criticism. Or a criticism. We're open Sorry. for all your interventions. <laughs> Would you like the microphone? Um, I'm not sure what my question is, but it's something to do with loss and sorrow. It's something to do with um, museums are expected to be positive in this world of trying to tell the story of histories very differently and and actually turn storytelling over to different kinds of communities and different peoples. And I'm wondering how hope can deal with the losses of the past as well, so that the pasts that you're dealing with might also involve losing, both losing objects and losing stories and losing all kinds of things. But the story of museums, and uh, we hear it all the time, is, is one of continuous, um, the winning is part of kind of continuous things getting better, if you see what I mean. And I'm just wondering, it's not a very good question, but it's kind of edging around an area. No, no. Um, no you, you, you're right. There, uh, there. Um, well, I could answer it in two ways. I would want to first suggest to you that perhaps one of the things that I am suggesting, but probably Martin Roth would suggest, is that we should not so easily say that museums are. We need to start thinking about what museums can be and what they might need to be in this contemporary moment. And that is different from what museums are. Because to suggest that museums are this, um, it is to give in to this idea that only great histories can be told. Or only, uh, or that, uh, and, and one has to just trace the genealogy of these museums to see that. There was a moment where art was not from some places in the world. <laughs> Today, the, it is, and some of the most important, interesting art curators, but artists, are also from these places that didn't have art before. So I think we would first trouble this idea of what museums are. And to be honest with you, I agree with you. We need to perhaps think not so much only about a museum here talking about the French Revolution but one that also puts the French Revolution in the context of the Haitian Revolution mm -hmm. at the same time. And thinking of what that might mean, um, because it shows you that the, the history is a little bit more complex, more complicated, more, not always about winning. And we have to, re re to, 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 to inaugurate some other ways of telling those histories, where, as one scholar says, the small histories trouble 
our very ways of thinking history in the present. May so I, that's what would be I my just answer. add a thought and then the lady in the front and then you get the microphone. Isn't there though the other extreme as well? I think of two museums that I think are incredibly tastefully done, but maybe this is a bad interpretation of your question, but both the, um, the Jewish Museum here in Berlin, as well as the Genocide Museum in Rwanda, are all about loss, right? And on a very extreme scale. And, and I was wondering about um, the Jewish Museum, as you were speaking about this sort of us and them earlier on stage and the sort of juxtaposition again of the, the winner or the loser or the storyteller and the listener and and for what you just said because obviously those museums commemorate some of the biggest losses and man-made losses caused in our societies in general but the Jewish Museum does a very beautiful job of showing the togetherness of Jewish and German life across the centuries before um, the NS regime so my question would be don't we need sort of museums showing the togetherness between cultures before such atrocities happen? Like perhaps also in the context of a modern Germany today or a modern Europe that is not always this fortress Europe against the rest of the world. Um, uh, I mean, that's perhaps quite easy to answer in a sense because one could suggest it is exactly in this relational that I'm interested. That's what I was talking about, that we are living in an interconnected world, that these histories don't happen here and not there. So in a way, what I'm suggesting is exactly that, that one needs to start telling histories that are much more inter in intimately bound up together, rather than saying that, that those people did this and it is, and we did that. So no, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. But saying that as well, it is also okay, I think. I have this thing of transitional museums. A transitional museum in my head is a museum that, um, write, for a moment in time, writes those histories that are not written until the big museum takes it up. Because the big museum doesn't take up many things. And so you, you have a sense in which, for example, there are these spaces of art spaces in the UK when the Tate wasn't doing that kind of art. They would be the one that were taking up those kind of art practices until the Tate takes it up. Now the question is, when the Tate takes it up, do they disappear? Probably not. But these are spaces which, that are dedicated to a particular way of thinking about those histories that have not been told. And I think that that might be also important to have not all museums can tell all of the story as an interconnected big story. Yes, um, sorry, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I really want to take you out a little bit more on the, sort of the rewriting of colonial history. Yes. Um, isn't there a, I mean, what the points you've just made, really, you have to find the equation where the two, where the histories come together. Right. But there is a danger at the moment, as I'm sure you're aware. For example, the debate in Oxford about taking down the Statue of Rhodes. Mm. Now, is this something going beyond what is cooperative in the promotion of the common history as distinct from just trying to score points? You know, are we, do we have the danger of, before we get a more balanced approach of colonial history, do we have to go to the extremes and right. to some extent to the absurdities? Uh, but I would also like to try and draw you a little bit away from just 
colonial histories and go back to the points that were made by the director of the Tetyakov Gallery, which is in today's world where nationalism is an acute political problem and is breaking up common culture, the role that museums can really play, and that would include the colonies, the, uh, that would include museums all over the world. Uh, I mean, for example, we just had this reference to Jewish museums. Yes, yes. Well, a good Jewish museum tells the story of how Jewish culture merged with the cultures in which the Jews were living. And in the same way, you can tell the story of how Africa or the West Indies lived with British and French and German colonial uh, societies and how those complemented each other and not just simply contradicted each other. Um, that, um, I mean, if there was any solution to that question, it, then when then I would be wealthy and or 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 have some position. But but I I want to um I want to suggest first of all that that uh, that that trying to attend to small histories, trying to make bare or clear the atrocities of history trying to write the stories of those who have not been written is not a rewriting of history. Not at all. That all that is suggesting is that there are parts of histories which is always true. Archives are things that we have constituted. So it is not a rewriting of history. Right. No, 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 it's fine. Oh, no, there's no badly. We're having a conversation. <laughs> but secondly, um, now this is, you, you put me in a funny position because it's a difficult discussion to decide whether or not monuments should be removed. I, I, I do not want to make a pronouncement on that. What I would like to provoke you, though, to think with me about is, some, is, is another way of thinking about it. We are both citizens here. We are both citizens in this country. I'm, I'm imagining, all right? It's not true. Or we are both citizens in a country somewhere. And the question then is, how do we engage with the visibility of histories in cities as we walk them every day? What does it mean to walk a city every day and see history in front of you? So the question is, I'm not suggesting roads should be moved. No, I, I, I wouldn't go that far to tell them what to do in South Africa or whatever. But I'm interested in how objects interpolate, beckon, call to diverse citizens that walk through a, a city. And in that regard, then we can ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to engage, to, to be the flaneur in the city? And what does that object do for you or me? What does the text on it do for you or me? Would it... Would it would it do, do violence to say on the, on the podium of the, 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 the monument that this person was a colonizer? But it might not do so much violence to the monument or to Rhodes, but it might do something else for the, the difference of citizens who populate those cities. I just want to provoke that. But I will say that I don't know what the answer is. But your, your second point was about... Um, Museums, you're, you're talking about, or oh, you're, saying, you're saying that there, that nationalism, and I agree with you, that there is a national politics. That is what I call the anxious politics. Um, but I think that nationalism as a political framing is something that has multiple forgettings. 
it doesn't only it forgets the colonial, but it forgets other atrocities. That is what nationalism does. And it forgets those within our ranks who are poor as well. So in a way, I would suggest to you that I agree that it is not only the colonial. It is the, I just thought that that was what I could contribute to the discussion as others would contribute different things. And if you look at our five present, four presentation, then you would see nationalism as one imbued with the colonial, one imbued. So, so that is what I thought it would have been. Thank you. I'm sitting here. Hi. Hi, Hi. everybody. I'm dressing to you all. You know, sometimes the answer comes before the question. <laughs> Because I was, I was about to ask you about how we can overcome nationalism. And while you were speaking with the lady in the first row, uh, you, you, you uh, used a word uh, that I really feel attached with in that context. The word of citizen. Citizen comes from cities, and we, you are right, we are all citizens um, in different cities, and that goes beyond the nationalism idea. It doesn't matter so much which country we belong to, it matters in that 21st century more in which city we are living, aren't we? And I think it's a very nice statement that you made as a speaker here, that you come on the same floor like we are sitting here, so you're leaving the podium, you just go 30 centimeters lower to be equal with us. You, the other speakers don't do that. <laughs> They don't listen to me now because we are in channel three or four, whatever. <laughs> anyway, I think it's an interesting uh, body language. And, I, I, and that le leads me to my question because the other one was already answered. Overcoming nationalism goes by interdependence interdependent way of thinking, being citizens in a citizenship situation in the world. My question would be, how, and that leads me from you stepping down, how can museums or any kind of art institutions become more accessible, accessible for anybody, any citizen, so to say? How can we uh, get people really into it? Let's say the variety, the diversity of people, not only the cultural, scientific, Uh, RT-interested people, but the citizens, how can we get access or make museums or art institutions in general go beyond that f famous 5% people who enter the Jewish Museum or Tetyakov Gallery or the Humboldt Forum in the future? How do we make this really public spaces? Do you have a proposal to make or an idea to suggest We are welcome to receive it. Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I, I would um, perhaps, perhaps, you know, no, when, when, I went, when I was living in the UK, I, I worked at a museum called the Horniman. It's a small museum in South London, not really that big. Um, a lot of education programs. And one of the reasons why I love working in that museum is that I would sit in my office And I'd listen outside and I'd hear running going on and screaming. And I'd open the door and I looked out and I thought it was children screaming. No, it was parents running from their children <laughs> screaming. It was a tiny museum that saw about 700,000 visitors each year to the gardens and thing. And I think two reasons for that. On the one hand, it was free. So they just came. They just came with their buggies and they put the buggies down and they came. And two, it felt like theirs. 
I remember there was a day when it snowed too hard and the director decided that she was going to close the museum because it would be dangerous. And, I, and the people basically said, no, 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 you didn't consult us. We want to come into our museum. So in a way, the, the, there is a sense in which some museums occupy that space. But there are differential reasons why people don't go to museums. And we have to think about the differential reasons. Some people find it positively boring. And so I sometimes don't think so much about museums being inclusive. I think about how can museums be non-exclusive. So what can we do to bring down the borders and then people can choose if they come in or not. And that is one of the things that happens when you take away, um, what you call it, price, prices. You, you remove one border so people can come. But I couldn't tell you that I know the solution. That is one of the things we try. One of the things we do as a museum is that we have community projects. So we go out, we take objects out, and we show them in different small communities. So the museum is bigger than the exhibitions. Okay. Uh, yeah. May yeah. I? Yeah, hello. Uh, I would like to know how uh, do you see ethnography now? How to work on a museum with ethnographic work uh -huh. in context and in dialogue? Okay. So her question is how to see... You, you heard the question? Yes? Okay, sorry. Oh, yeah, you have the things on. I don't have the things on. <laughs> How, how do I see ethnographic museums now? Uh, again, for many of you who know the discussion with ethnographic museums, we've been having this question for the last 20 years, you know, how to make, how to give them futures. Um, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to propose, and this is not only because I'm head of research in our ethnographic museum, is that we need to rethink the museum away from it only being an exhibition space. That this idea that a museum is only for exhibitions in a certain sense, they've become this space where blockbusters are necessary, high numbers are necessary, whatever. And so the idea is that, the, um, and to be honest with you, if you have 500,000, think of me as a curator, 500,000 objects. In my 25 years, no matter how many exhibitions I do, <laughs> I won't put this mode out. So one has to think of other modes of engaging with the collections. And that's why I was saying to you that one of the things that we're interested in is not so much the exhibitions, but creating spaces for as many people as possible to interact, to think with, to help us problematize and make us uncomfortable about the collections that we have for creating other futures for them. So that's one thing. But in context, I am not one for the old-fashioned um, huts and houses. Those, no, I, I wouldn't say that. And I don't necessarily think that those things are necessary for the imagination anymore, to be honest with you. I think those were the moments when we had dioramas. And what we need to do is move away from the diorama and try to get the effect of what the diorama is. This is two different things. Because I think that the diorama is a little bit old in its way. However, I do not believe that ethnographic museums should only give in to the question of objects being art. I don't think that that is the right sol solution. Everything needs to be whatever. And the second thing is I don't think that the that our engagement with making them viable shouldn't be restricted to only working with 
art, artists as the way for the future. I think there are much, much more possibilities. Um, actually, one of the projects that I want to do is to work with a saxophonist and, an, and a composer and a poet and whatever and move away from thinking that the ethnographic, the engagement with things is only um, um, through art. There was a project I just did recently we're trying to do, which is about sound. And what does an object sound like? <laughs> a deprivileging of vision to try and do an exhibition just about sound. Thank you very much for your performative dancing, your session. That, that, that is not the intention, but I, <laughs> I can't help myself. But I have a concern. <laughs> yes, you see, I'm with the European Citizen Science Movement, mm -hmm. and I'm worried, we speak about urban and pagan, very much the people in the countryside are the majority of the people. I know it in Germany from the association of towns and villages, much more people than just in cities. So I wonder... What is your pagan or sagacious knowledge I learned in Africa? What is your approach to not losing the diversity we have in, in the region? Because when I look into our dialogic approaches, mm -hmm. we learned from the South African Indaba, we learned open space from a, from a preacher going to Africa. We should really go back to be with the people. People in rural areas, yeah. No, no. Um, actually, um, I, I would suggest to you there are two two things to that. I, I'm going to make one thing which is going to be a speculation, and I could be wrong, so forgive me if I make that speculation. Well, the second one, um, one of the projects that I'd love to be able to do, actually, is to bring together the relationship between the Volkskunde Museum and the Volkerkunde Museum that we've actually separated those two histories as, as different histories. And actually, if you look at the two museums, Volkskunde was basically the other from within, and Volkskunde was the other from without, right? So temporal and so on. And I, I, would, I would imagine that that could be an interesting way of trying to see the museums differently. But I don't know that, I don't know, one of our museums, it's, it's in a very rural area, Nijmegen, a very Christian area, and it, it gets 60,000 visitors a year, from that community as well, a lot of them from that community. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that museums are excluding the rural or an engagement with the, peop, the general people in the rural. I would actually suggest to you, and this is a, what is, what is inschatin? Um, a guess, a guess. I would actually suggest to you that perhaps Ethnographic museums, in their way of display, in their modes of, of presenting, actually might, much be, might be much more accessible to many people that don't imagine themselves as the, the, art, the art cosmopolitan who travels the world than many art museums. Actually, many people who even work in ethnographic museums <laughs> find art museums <laughs> a little bit uh, intimidating, contemporary art. So I, I, I am not so sure that these spaces are exclusionary spaces for those. I, I would suggest that museums in general need to think more closely about the complex entanglement 
of different subjects who feel excluded from them, which includes class, gender, all of those, all of those things. Because many museums don't deal with themes. Folkakunda museums, ethnographic museums, are positively male spaces. Men collected, <laughs> most of it. We need to think that differently. I'm, I'm going to just volunteer a suggestion coming from my field of work, just maybe and add a question before I pass you the mic. But I think, you know, we're really good at having these little, very hyper-local sort of ethnographic museums and in all kinds of different places in Germany where you only learn about yourself and your own culture. So uh, learning about other other things out there maybe one suggestion is to put it on a bus i have um, friends who run a project this is again from my field of work not from a museum context who are called the constitute and they have a mobile maker space it's a double-decker bus like a tour van and they drive out to rural villages especially in like politically let's say critical areas in in germany and so that young people there can experience and play around with hardware innovation and just learn from it from a different perspective if they don't have such facilities as we do here in berlin like the fab lab and other institutions that offer that. So maybe that can be a model for bringing things to people. But I would like to ask the question, what about the digital realm? How about the digital representation of the knowledge that we have representative physical spaces like museums? Isn't that a possibility to also increase accessibility? Because A, it sort of ties in with this, you know, a digital space cannot be, or at least is, hmm, okay, question theory, maybe much harder to nationalize Maybe we can move beyond this idea of us and them and the borders if we think about more things in a less physical context. No, 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 no. You're right. I mean, I mean, the digital pro 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 proposes a lot for museums. Actually, it challenges as well. If you if you think historically, an ethnographic museum was a place you went to travel. And we used to write about it like that, eh? Come and see the people you, whatever. You couldn't travel. And what happens when you can just, actually, you don't really have to go to the Ethnographic Museum anymore. You can either just press Maori and it comes up on you, on your, whatever you find out. Or actually, many of the peoples, because of migration, of the peoples who were far away are living close by to you in the cosmopolitan cities that you live in now. But, and so I agree with you that the digital offers a lot. But I, one of the things that I... I, I do, do not want us to do is to imagine the digital as offering to imagine the digital also with its limits the digital is also limited to who has access it has made access bigger but it still isn't as accessible as we think it is the digital is quite 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 national Actually, I'm always amazed at how America <laughs> controls a lot of what happens in the spaces. So, and so it is a, it, there is a sense of the national unity. So while I agree with you that the digital offers many possibilities, one of the things that I'm interested in, now we can show almost all of our collections online. We can create spaces where people can criticize how we've documented them. And that has been happening. Right now, I think that museums are in a very, very funny position um, anxious position because you can't really put things online anymore <laughs> in the way you used to. It comes back at you through a Twitter, tweet, whatever you call it, and you have to deal with it. So once you start doing that, that happens. But I think that we should still be um, cautious about what we think the digital is able to do for us. But, but I understand what you mean. <clears throat> so my question follows up a little bit to his question. Um, when you said... Uh, you don't want museums to be 
non-exclusive. Do you think that museums actually do enough to be non-exclusive or do you think that some of them actually try to be exclusive even though they officially, sh well, try to show that they try to integrate people but you think they're really interested in and the second is do you think that they do enough on being non-exclusive? Yeah, well, if we were to start there then I would have to caution my comeback. To be honest with you, when I, when I agreed to do this I didn't know that this is how it would be but it's... <laughs> <laughs> I <didn't, you> know, <laughs> I'd have to come back on my on my word museums because that's a big word. Uh, I think that some museums do great work in trying to be inclusive, and others do less good work in that. There is an ongoing, continued complaint of museums being curators being protective. That is my collection, mine, mine, mine. You can't get to it. And, and a part of the professionalization of museums um, over the last 25 years has been in an attempt to shift that. And so you see much more, many more museums being open. But to, to suggest that all museums are doing enough, no, I don't think that, I don't, and that's for many reasons. Some is intentional. I'd like to be quiet with myself, protect myself. Other is they don't have enough resources. They don't know that. So it is, it is multiple. But one of the things that in that, though, is that one of the things that I have feared with the so-called professionalization and, and, and openness is that it, it, while it is important in our understanding and bringing in people and bringing in multiple knowledges, sometimes what it does is that it questions the knowledge of, that curators can have that expertise exists and judgment exists. And I think that we should be cautious with that, even while we use the technologies of democratization and inclusion. We have to also say that there is judgment and, and specialism. Okay, um, I'm sorry for being rude. I just looked into my phone because there was a message. We have a very modern moderators chat group here and there was some unsureness whether we're supposed to return you all to the main stage, but I think that's not happening. Okay. One panel's already broken since the seven and the reception is officially starting, but I'd like to leave the time since we started a bit later for maybe one or two last questions if you have some. Did you just raise your hand? No? Okay. <laughs> Any hands going up in the back? Now's your chance. Okay, you and then I'll add I just want to concentrate on the special place we are here. That is not a place what is mentioned to be a cultural place. It's nearly unknown in the, in the public. And these open spaces are very good examples for uh, surprises and, and other contacts. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very, very happy. And I guess that's the point that the gentleman was reading. I'm very happy to occupy... Um, and a city like Berlin, I think, is very nice for that. It, it occupies an urban landscape that has multiple possibilities, that has multiple offers, that has different authors. That is necessary, actually, if you are to develop a particular kind of criticality to live in the world that you live in. Having only, you know, bastions of big museums that say one thing is not, not the only thing, you need the other spaces. Because, to be honest with you, museums, no matter how hard they try to be radical and, and with it and woke, it is hard for them to be that. So they can try, many of them can try, and they can push it hard and push the agenda, but sometimes the structures that they're intricated in, some of them anyway, made, make it especially hard. And you need other institutions, other kind of archives to disrupt the landscape and also to make museums feel uncomfortable. I think that that is necessary as well. Thank you. Did 
Oh, goodness, there was so much in there. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I wrote down that I thought we'd talk about. Um, you just mentioned archives. Isn't one way to make things more participatory to open some of the archives that museums keep? That's um, something that I think other European countries, like the Netherlands, for instance, are way more advanced in than here, to allow, again, these kind of different use cases and interpretations. Yeah, one, one of the things that I, 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 I never try to do is to establish um, um. <laughs> no no one of the things I wouldn't want to do is to establish a certain kind of a hierarchy of of countries as to how they do it. That was me that was no, not no, you yeah, saying yeah. that. No 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 right no it's it's important to say that because yeah it, it is so but um, in the Netherlands as well we do continue our projects with small community organizations to try and open the archives to bring people in to on particular days to commemorate or write their own histories or tell us what collections we don't have. Mm -hmm. So we do those. But still, there exists these small radical archives that are emerging which still says that we are not doing what we need to be doing. And so in a way, even while we open the archive, one has to realize the limits of these spaces as things that were created over time historically with histories of exclusion. And it is in articulation with other spaces, other archival spaces, that we can, you know, make histories different or write them differently. Yeah. But, but museums should open. They should open themselves, the archives, the doors. Of course, I would agree with you totally. And maybe just one last uh, thought <laughs> before I let you go, um, which is inspired by something you said and something the gentleman just said here. I heard in one of your interviews, and you mentioned something similar on stage today, where you said, which I think is a very beautiful thought, that museums shouldn't just be a place to keep apart the past, but to also design the future. And, and I just had to think of a project that a friend of mine is running um, from your question, what kind of places can be museums? Because I think sometimes the city is the museum. And in the case, for instance, like Jerusalem, where you have so many different layers of history and the place becomes the, the sort of experience itself. Um, I have friends that have developed this method called speculative tourism, which is this idea maybe you know from Berlin or other places you have these columns in the city and you can press a button and then somebody will tell you about the history of that place. So they've sort of redesigned this idea, but then for, to be told a, some possible speculative futures about this place. And I was wondering if that's a methodology, the sort of speculative design and future casting that you've also experimented with or that you think could work in a museal context where you look at an object and understand its history, but maybe also think about its future or a piece of art or installation. But I think that actually, funnily enough, one of the work that I've done on, or, or the work that I, this thing that I keep talking about, hope, uh, emerged when I was, uh, two things. One, um, studying the lives of the enslaved who didn't have optimism, but they needed to have hope to survive. But also an artwork by, <laughs> a particular artwork, where he had created, this artist and many artists do this, he had created these climate change um, fixing machine. <laughs> so he's, he's imagining himself creating possible other futures. So in the realm of, of, of the museal of art, it is, I think it is a part of our responsibility to be able to imagine other futures. 
And a part of our work is to speculate. It is to say that this is the history. And let us ask these questions of the objects and these collections as a kind of speculative theory to think about what might, what it might have been or what it, might, it could be. So I think that it is important to be able to ask those kind of questions as long as it is, some of it can be open and free and then others of it need to be grounded in its, in its speculative questioning. Speculation don't mean non-judgment, right? One, one is trained in a way to think these things through. And I, uh, I was in a wonderful project with a design company that they designed what they called the museum's deletion machine. And they put, brought 12 of us in the room and we were going to delete 10% of the collections each period. And it, it, it had us think about, as, as people, why do we keep these? What would we keep? What would we get rid of if we were going to get rid of? Which are critical questions when you just have the word deaccessioning to do. So even in that speculation, it has a use to shift the way you think about what you might do with your collections in the present and future. So I invite speculation as a possibility. Yes. It's a super interesting example. Thank you for that. I think we could definitely go on discussing because, again, just thinking that in the de digital realm and the possibilities of deletion or of infinity storage would make for another great uh, session here. But I've been asked to close this and send you all off to the reception and there's been this sort of hint of food in the air. So <laughs> thank you very much for sitting so uh, patiently and especially also for contributing such fantastic questions and thoughts to this session. Thank you, Wayne. It was a really a pleasure to discuss with you. And again, just a reminder please leave your headsets at the designated places and please bring your badges tomorrow for admission. I hope very much that you enjoy the reception. Thank you.